WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Well, sports is something that connects us all in New England, and one of the best at making sure we had that connection for 37 years is joining us on this edition of City Talk. He is the one and only Mike Lynch. Mike, it's really an honor for me to be able to sit here and talk to a man who has contributed as much to the media as you have. Well, I think the feeling is mutual, Ken, because I've been an admirer of yours uh, for a lot of years. And, uh, you know, we talk at the ballpark, but ironically, it's the first time we've ever talked together on a show. And uh, I'm honored and, and to be here, and I hope I can uh, live up to uh, your great reputation. How's that? Oh, no question about it. Now, tell me about growing up in Swampscott and what eventually got you interested in becoming a part of this media? Well, my dad was a high school teacher and a coach. He coached uh, uh, football, basketball, and baseball at Swampscott. Uh, he had some great athletes. He coached Billy Canigliaro in uh, football and, and, um, and, bas- and uh, uh, baseball. He coached uh, Dick Geron, who went on to be the head coach of the Chicago Bears and the Buffalo Bills. And I was always around good people. You know, every day after school, I was the water boy in football. I was the ball boy in basketball. and I was the bat boy on the baseball team. So, you know, I watched an awful lot of, of sports firsthand from, from the bench and the sidelines. And, you know, I, I uh, as my playing days were, you know, uh, coming to an end uh, after high school and, and in college, you know, I, I said, you know, I really like this, but, you know, it's tough to catch a break. So you got to be be really patient and you got to have a bunch of odd jobs uh, to support yourself. Because the first job I got was at WITS Radio and uh, I was working Harvard football games as a statistician. And I only got, I got $10 per game, but I wasn't allowed to go to the away games. And uh, so the first away game was at Columbia and I just... Uh, somehow found my way on an Eastern Airlines shuttle for like $29. And then I hopped the ride with somebody that was going to the game in their cab, so I didn't have to pay for that. Then when I got to Baker Field, I climbed the fence and I climbed over the barbed wire and uh, Ned Martin was sitting up there and he said, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I just figured, you know, you needed your statistician. And in the middle of the game, he didn't understand something that Joe Restick was doing. So he said, well, we got a former Harvard quarterback right here. Let's stick the microphone in front of his face until he can probably explain what's going on. So I didn't have any time to go, ah, 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 and to make a fool of myself. I just sort of uttered a couple of phrases and, you know, I, 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 I eventually landed a job there. So it, I was lucky. I was really lucky. I was the right guy, right place, right time. Tell me about Mariner Communications, Joe Scallon, WITS, and Cliff and Claff. <laughs> um, How many times were you called Busher? But Bush, it, that, that was actually a compliment. He called you Bush. It was a compliment. Yeah. He called everybody Bush League. Everybody like, hello, Bush, how you doing? What's going on, Bush? And um, We're talking, of course, about Cliff Keene. Yeah, Cliff Keene, uh, uh, writer for the Globe, and his partner was uh, Larry Claflin, who wrote for the, um, for the Herald of the Record American. And they were very nice to me. I mean, they they just could have uh, just 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 blown me off. But they were both, and they didn't and they didn't know me from Adam. I was just like the, the kid that was hanging around all, all the time, getting coffee and sandwiches. And every time we turned around, I was like that that 
that mosquito that wouldn't go away. I just was just just there all the time. And and for, for a couple of years, Cliff Keen thought my name was Mike Flynn. He said, well, we got Mike Flynn here today. And I said, who the hell's Mike Flynn? And they said, that's you. That's what he thinks your name is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that that WYTS and Mariner Communications have made a lot of noise. I got the rights to the Red Sox. Um, and they got a lot of bad noise, too, when they fired uh, Ned Martin and, and Jim Woods because those guys weren't keen on reading promotional copy during the game. They, they didn't think that that announcers should be reading Midas muffler spots um, or Emily oil spots. It should be done by someone in the studio or, or like a news person. And uh, they, they made a big mistake by firing those two with, they were, you know, as good a radio duo as you'll find anywhere. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I had Ned Martin on the week that he got let go uh -oh. after the Red Sox Yankees playoff game. Wow. That Saturday night. Wow. And he was wonderful. He was great to me. And uh, I remember he was talking about recreating ball games when he was in minor leagues. And I said to him, Ned, what'd you do when the, if the wire went out? And he said, there are a lot of fall balls and a lot of pretty hats to look at. <laughs> I, I had the pleasure of working with him on Harvard football. Uh, I became the color person for a hundred dollars a game. I got a nice raise. And, um, and Ned, Ned was the play-by-play -play guy. And I couldn't believe that I was sitting next to elbow to elbow with a guy who was one of my idols growing up. And the <laughs> fact that, you know, that I'm sitting with him, I had to get over the butterflies. I didn't care about the game. I knew I could, I could broadcast the game. But working with Ned Martin and then looking in the program that day and seeing my name next to his, join Ned Martin and Mike Lynch as Harvard football brings you the 1978 season or something like that. And that was uh, my my mom uh, cut got it cut out of the program. She framed it and gave it to me as a Christmas gift, and I still have it hanging downstairs in my basement. It's uh, it was su such an honor, and he was so so nice to me, and and so uh, supportive, and just just a great great mentor. He was he was nice to me too. I had the pleasure of knowing Ned for a long long time, and he was just a great guy. And besides the Red Sox. He was also a big Frank Sinatra fan, and we always would discuss him as well. Um, but how did you, what happened to get you to Channel 5? Obviously, there was a great lineup there, but it, it didn't last as long as it should have, maybe. Um, what happened to you? Well, um, I worked with Brian Leary at WITS Radio. Oh, God, I remember him. Yeah, I remember Brian. And Brian had sure. moved on to channel five he was the weekend guy with he worked with clark booth and don gillis um and uh brian um uh, don gillis had just endless amounts of vacation and clark booth had a deal with the news director that he did not have to anchor because his strength was writing he just he did he didn't like standing on uh, being on camera he liked being on the field reporting from you know a red sox game or or, or some 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 travels he took so leary would go on these 30 or 40 day streaks where he wouldn't have a day off. So Larry said to me, Hey, um, I convinced the news director that, you know, we could get a part-time guy to sort of give me a day off here and there. Would you be interested in auditioning? And I said, yeah, sure. I, I, I'd, I'd love to give it a shot. So Larry brings me in on a Friday night. It was March 25th, 1982. And I walk in the newsroom and I see Chet Curtis, Natalie Jacobson, Dick Albert, 
Jack Harbour, Susan Warnick. I said, oh, my goodness, I don't belong in this place. These people, this is the major leagues right here. And so then I went into the newsroom, uh, uh, the studio. And in those days, the, the news ran from six to seven. So I'm watching the news. And as each minute went by, I sunk deeper and deeper into my chair saying, oh, my God, I have no business being here. And afterwards, uh, Larry said, okay, we're going to do an audition now. Use my script and just read what, what I had, and we'll see how it goes. Um, I still have the tape. It's one, Ken, it's one of the worst audition things you've ever seen in your life. I, I said, the Red Sox played the Detroit Tigers in exhibition baseball today. Let's now <laughs> look at the highlights. Boom, I put my head down, and then just, it was awful. So we went upstairs to Jim Thistle. The great Jim Thistle was a news director. And he says to me, what do you think, Mike? And I said, well, I said, I really appreciate the opportunity, but I would have to work six days a week, eight hours a day for a minimum of six months before I would, I would consider myself qualified. And he says, well, you don't have that long. He said, you're on tomorrow night at six, Saturday night, at six o'clock. What do you think of that? And I said, oh my goodness. He goes, it'll be great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so years later, um, I was talking to him on, on the phone one day and I said, you know, Jim, I said, I still have that tape from 1982. I said, what were you thinking of when you, when, you, when you hired me? I mean, what were you thinking of? He says, well, you know, Mike, it was Friday night and it was about 7.30 when you came into my office and I always kept a bottle of scotch in the bottom drawer. And I think I had at least one under my belt, maybe two. And you look pretty damn good to me. So I got my <laughs> with you. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I never left. I never, that was it. I never left. I think we'll always remember the first time we were ever on the air. I was when Larry Glick overslept because he had too much to drink when he went out to an early dinner. <laughs> and I had to fill in for Larry Glick on BZ Radio. Yep. So if you think you were scared, forget it. <laughs> you'll, you'll never, if I had makeup on, it would have run all over because <laughs> I, I was really, really scared. Um, yep. One, you know, one of the great lessons uh, from that day, and it might, might have been that day or it might have been the following Monday, um, when I walked in the newsroom and just was scared to death, Natalie Jacobson got up and she walked right over to me and says, hi, Mike, I'm Natalie Jacobson. And I said, no kidding, I thought you were the security guard, you know what I mean? And she says, welcome to Channel 5, you're going to do great here. And that just, that just buoyed my confidence. I mean, I felt 10 feet tall. And I felt like a member of the of the five. We always have a corny thing, five is family. And but it really was. And and that's how how everybody treated me there. Not one person was was mean to me, rude to me, um, you know, and said, Oh, go find, you know, go go figure it out for yourself. Nobody was like that. And it was just such a wonderful place to work. And um, you know, I was I was part-time for about a year and I was doing a lot of fill-in work and and everybody was great to me. And then Brian Leary went to law school. And um, the next year, and then I got hired full time. I remember talking to Bob Ryan, and yeah. he said he did some some part time sports there uh, at Channel Five and put together packages. But he left because he thought the pressure was too much and he couldn't stand it. He he also didn't like um, he he he's a writer, you know what I mean? And he was given like two minutes to present his his uh, work for the day. So he's a fast talker. He would talk fast, get as many uh, facts in as he could. And what bothered him was that, that 
in those days, there was no VCR, there was no rewind, there was no, you know, any place you could find it. So if you didn't see Bob Ryan at 620, you missed him. His feeling was, I write for a newspaper, the news, newspaper's lying around the barbershop, newspaper's lying around the, the, the hair salon, it's lying in the dentist's office, it's in the doctor's office, and you can read it any time, you can read it at 6 in the morning, 6 at night, 11 at night, 8.05, you know, and it's kind of, it's, it, and he, he missed that. So he, he his, his last assignment was the marathon, I think, in 1982 or 83. And um, he finished, and I think he went to the garden that night and wrote about the Celtics playoff game. Um, but he gave it a shot. Uh, Clark Booth really liked him a lot and, and thought he'd be good in television, but he, he just didn't like it. God, I loved Clark Booth. He was an excellent oh. writer and a good oh. guy, too. He was a nice man. Oh, my goodness. We... Uh, his nickname at Channel Five was the Cardinal. Because <laughs> <laughs> we we had a couple popes that died within, uh, you know, a few months of each other. I think in '79 or whatever year it was, and he would always go to the Vatican and report. And he wrote for the pilot. And he uh, every time there was some type of crisis with the church, uh, we said, "Well, let's get the Cardinal. The Cardinal will take care of it. He'll know what to do and what to say." And so, yeah, that's how we got the nickname. The Cardinal, but you know, he would work in sports and, you know, I said, get me a, a thesaurus. I got to like, get me a dictionary. I got to look up half these words. I don't even know what he's talking about. He's so, such, such a good writer. I mean, he was so good. He was everything that anybody would want to be in a writer. The first interview I ever did when I came to Boston, when I was still in college was with Ken Coleman, the uh -huh. radio voice of the Red Sox. Yep. Do you remember the first interview you ever did? Um, I think it was with, uh, on TV, Roy White of the Yankees. Oh yeah. Uh, they were playing the Yankees and they, they sent me, they had never sent me out in the field to do a, a live shot. So they sent me to Fenway after I had done a couple of weekends, um, you know, in March and April and May. And then I, I went down and I interviewed Roy White and I have a picture of us and, um, I did a live shot with him because the Red Sox were in the dugout and the Yankees were taking batting practice while we were on the, uh, on the air. So I couldn't get a Red Sox player. So I had to find somebody and they said, Oh, you got get a live shot, get a live shot, get somebody now. And Roy, <laughs> I, I introduced myself. I said, would you, would you mind coming home with me for like, you know, like a minute and a half or so. He said, uh, where are you? I said, I'm standing I'm right over there by the camera. He goes, when do you need me? I said, well, yeah, about four minutes. So he goes, all right, I'll be over. And he came over and he was great. And I, I was so relieved that, you know, first of all, he didn't stiff me, he showed up. And, um, you know, there, there was a lot of pressure to, to get a guest and then, you know, ask good questions. Uh, I don't even know what I asked him. I was probably so nervous. But but he was nice, and I remember doing that uh, very, very well. I have had writers and broadcasters tell me in the last few years that athletes are not as accessible as they used to be. Did you yeah. find that true as time went on in sports? As time went on, without question, um, you know, there was there was a time when, you know, you'd go into a locker room and you'd just go to somebody's locker and talk to them about something or basketball, locker room, hockey, um, football, same thing with the Patriots. And then eventually, you know, uh, the, 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 they had they, they used to have one public relations person. Now they, they, they've got about seven or eight and, you know, they bring a person to a podium and it's a press conference. Everything's press conference style now. And it's, it'd be, be hard to, uh, you know, I, I did a thing with uh, 
uh, Calvin Schiraldi, Dennis Johnson in uh, 1990. I, I can't remember what, what the year was. Uh, no, I think it was maybe the late 80s. Um, they watched soap operas because, you know, they, they, they have a lot of time during the day and before they come to the court and things. So I went, I went to Calvin Schiraldi's house and watched him watch One Life to Live or All My Children at General Hospital or something like that. And then I went and talked to Dennis Johnson and that would never happen today. You would never get to anybody's house. You would you'd never get to talk to them, you know, about uh, watching soap operas during the day. And, you know, it was always, I went to Raymond Berry's house and, and sat down with him after they played in the, in the Super Bowl, talking about what's going to come up the next year. And, you know, Steve Nelson of the Patriots. And uh, it, it's unthinkable that it would happen today, but you had that access back then. And so, you know, today it's really hard for, for the, all the different stations in Boston to differentiate themselves from the other because they've all got the same sound bites, they've all got the same interviews, and they've all got the same stuff. So there's a real new, new challenge to them right now to try to, you know, do something to make yourself distinctive. It's almost the same with the sports talk shows. I mean, I remember when they first started, <clears throat> Guy Manila started yep. in 1969 for two hours in in july yep. uh and dick lutz did it on wrko for a while for two hours now it's it's like 24 hours a day seven days a week are we overrun with it yeah because there's there's so many stations and there's so many hours that have to be filled uh everybody needs content and They'll, you know, their, their, their guests will be, they, they don't care who the guest is, as long as the guest is alive, has a pulse and can talk. Uh, and, and that's pretty much the case. So we've got two talk radio stations in Boston, but look at, look at all the hours that we have. Um, you know, I, I, I worked at the this graveyard shift uh, at WITS. I worked seven to midnight. Uh, and some nights it was pretty lonely, especially when like the World Series, if the World Series was going on or the NBA Finals and Celtics, the Red Sox might have been in it or the Bruins. I'd be there going, OK, 426-203. We have a couple open lines here. And what I want to say was, please call me, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> some, some, some lonely nights when when that bank of lights uh, wouldn't light up. I wanted to say, I think we should make heroin legal. That might get someone yeah. to call me because they'd be so mad. <laughs> Yeah, that certainly would have been interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you a devotee of sports talk shows now? Um, I'm not because I, I I used to listen to them when I was in the car. And, you know, I, I haven't been driving for the past year. So I would always catch the shows on the way to Channel 5 and then on the way home. And the same thing when I was working, if I was working before I became the main anchor, I, you know, during the day, I would, I would catch them. But, um, you know, I mean, cell phones have just given a whole new life to these to these shows. It used to be that, um, you know, you, 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 you skipped away from your desk at your lunch hour and you were on hold for 15, 20 minutes. And then, you know, if you had to get back to work, you just sort of hung up. So there were a lot of regular guys that were on all the time. These, these guys mustn't have had jobs. But um, now... There's no shortage of callers. Uh, you could say anything. You could say, today we're going to be talking about beach volleyball. And the phones will light up because people have access to their cell phone now. Yeah. Look at how long Deflategate lasted. That was incredible. My goodness. I can't tell you. The, we used to print off every time 
a thing came out. The first uh, thing, I think it was the, what's the report? He was uh, played, played at Holy Cross. Um, uh, but anyway, he wrote a 500 page report. Uh, and it came out like quarter of five and our news started at five. News director says, all right, read this and uh, go on the air. We can give, give two minutes a, a summation. I said, it's 512 pages. I can't read this. <laughs> <laughs> I went to college, but, you know, I didn't take a speed reading course. Uh, but that was that was a um, that thing had a lot of legs. Uh, I made four trips to New York City um, when Tom Brady was first uh, in the NFL office. We went down to Park Avenue. We staked outside the house and we were outside the offices on Park Avenue. And then there was a back entrance on Lexington Avenue. And I got it from good authority that when he was coming in, he was going to come in on the Lexington Avenue side, not the Park Avenue side. So everyone's on Park Avenue. And uh, I didn't, uh, we had we had an early crew that did the uh, eye opener in the morning and they hung around the back door in Lexington Avenue. And here comes Brady. And they get the shot. Hey, Tom, Tom, can we talk? Nope, can't talk, but thanks anyway. And But, you know, we call it in TV, call it the money shot. And we got them going in and everybody else was out front of Park Avenue. They didn't get them. And they were, so they all came back. I got there about two o'clock in the afternoon and stayed overnight and did the 11 o'clock news, et cetera, et cetera. But I was out back by Lexington Avenue and they were all back. Like, How'd you know he was coming out there? How'd you know he was coming out there? And I said, well, you know, I have a friend who has a friend, and, you know, and, um, then uh, we moved to uh, the lower Manhattan outside the, 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 the courthouse, the federal courthouse. And I was there once, twice, three times down there. So four times altogether. And um, spent a lot of time just sitting outside waiting. Um, you couldn't videotape anything in the courtroom. You know, I went up to an auxiliary courtroom and watched on a, on a TV. And, um, and when, it, when it was happening that uh, the judge was said, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to, we're going to, Richard Berman, we're going to throw the, the case out. Um, I called Steve Bernard, our cameraman downstairs, and I said, Steve, just get on the elevator right now. I'll get your camera ready. Here he comes. Here he comes. And so he's up. He's got the camera on the shoulder, and all the other photographers are sitting there with, uh, you know, with the, 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 uh, talking away, and things are on the ground. But a lot of the photographers from Boston knew that if Steve Bernard, Channel 5's cameraman, put his camera up on his shoulder and was ready, something's going to be happening. So the guys from Boston, all got ready and they got the shot of Brady walking out and getting into a van taking off. And I think some, a lot of the New York guys uh, whiffed on the shot because they didn't have anybody that was upstairs. On one hand, I think that technology is a blessing. Yes. I love nothing better than to be able to sit here in my bedroom and listen to the San Francisco Giants baseball games yep. with no static. Yep. But on the other hand, I'm curious as to uh, how much the internet has hurt your television sports coverage, if at all? I think that it has, uh, the audience is, is, is dwindled considerably because you know everything that has happened before six, before you had to wait for 620 or 1120. You, you didn't get any, any news or information. If the Red Sox game ended at 1030, you knew they won or lost. But other than that, you didn't know anything that was going on. Um, now, um, you know, the minute you're, if you're out in a story at, at uh, one o'clock in the afternoon and let's say, uh, you've got, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the golf, the golf used to come around here. So, you know, you got, um, I don't know, uh, Peter Jacobson or, or somebody like that, or Brad Faxon, uh, you know, shot a 69 at Pleasant Valley. 
you know, you have to wait till six o'clock. Now you put it right on the, you put it right right on your phone, and and you have to, and, and you're you're expected to. And you know, we have four or five people at Channel Five now that do nothing but um, update and and write stories on our webpage. And you know, by the time I I, I don't know who is, you know, getting their news. And saying, "Wow, geez, I didn't know that happened uh, this afternoon at the at the courtroom. I didn't know so and so was convicted. I didn't know so and so was traded." Um, now you know everything. So I don't know how you make yourself distinctive. And so, in some ways, I'm kind of kind of glad that I, I, I the time I served uh, uh, was well served. Term technically, I think it'd be very difficult today to to, to differentiate myself from Channel Four, or Channel Seven, or Fox Twenty Five, or any of the other stations. All right. Let's let's take a couple of minutes if we can, and assess each club that's here in this town. Okay. Right now, it's the Boston Red Sox. There's all kinds of talk about a feud between Alex Cora and Chaim Bloom. Uh, a lot of people, including myself, resent the the Bogart situation, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on the overall picture of that ball club right at the moment. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, they they were. Uh, I was looking today, and uh, the Red Sox. Um, uh, what do you call it? The Boston Red Sox. Uh, they own the Liverpool team. They they auto racing. Um, but anyway, they 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 reached some deal with uh, uh, a baseball card organization or or something like that. And I said, you know, why am I reading this news all the time? I'm not reading anything about potential trades or moves that the club is going to make to improve improve the club. I, I think that, that John Henry um, is content with all these different things that uh, Fenway Sports Group, that's what it's called. Um, all these uh, different toys they have. They've got the, uh, you got to deal with LeBron James, uh, the soccer team in Liverpool, uh, Roush White Racing and NASCAR. Uh, and I, I think the team on the field it, it is a low priority for them. Um, I think they've, they don't want to spend any money. Um, that was, we learned that through Mookie Betts. Um, we learned it again through Xander Bogats, and I think just to save face, they signed um, a third baseman. Um, and 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 I, I think that I, I I don't I don't have I used to love watching the the, the game, and I'd say, oh, I I don't want I don't want to go to the refrigerator to get a sandwich uh, or uh, get a soda because Nomar's coming up, Manny's coming up, and it, it, something explosive could happen. I don't feel that way about anybody in the Red Sox lineup right now. There's no no reason to drive me to uh, the television set and watch it. If there's nothing else on, I'll watch and see what's going on. You know, they blow hot and cold. They, uh, you know, they a little bit of a winning streak going on now after a bad losing streak. And they're still in last place, which, you know, reminds me of the days when I was a kid in the 1960s. Uh, the Red Sox were in last place all the time. And you could go to Fenway Park and you could you could sit wherever you wanted. Yeah. You know, the people are still showing up at Fenway because it, it, the ballpark itself is a tourist attraction. I used to always say the Red Sox could be playing the Bad News Bears, a bunch of 12-year-olds running around, and 35,000 people would show up every night. And I felt that way. Now you're lucky if you get 28,000, 29,000. And if this keeps up, that 28,000, 29,000 is going to be 21,000, 22,000 in a year or two. So I, I don't have great... Great hope for the Red Sox uh, anytime soon. Bruins. Bruins, you know, 
something about getting the best record in the NHL and just spending all their energy on that really bothered me during the course of the season, during February and March and early April. I said, you know what? I said, I could, you know, once, because when that regular season ends, you've started, you, you've got a reset and it's the playoffs. Eight plays one, two plays seven. And I said, anybody can beat anybody. And sure enough, it happened. We saw it so many times. The Bruins would just spend so much energy and getting the best record in the league and being the best team during the regular season. And they used to hang banners at the garden, the president's trophy. And, you know, they looked down the other end and the Celtics only hang up world championships. And the Bruins, I thought, should only be hanging up Stanley Cups. And sure enough, it happened again this year. And I was not one bit surprised when it happened. Um, I don't know how the club's going to look next year. I don't know if Bergeron's going to be back. Uh, I don't know if Preci's going to be back. Uh, they're very valuable players. But if they lose those two guys, are they still going to be the best team in the league? They're close. I mean, they they have potential of winning the Stanley Cup. So I, I think the the future is bright for the Bruins. Um, but I think the window is going to close very rapidly. I, I just couldn't believe it. I just, I was, I mean, the same thing happened with the Dodgers last year. Look at the year the Dodgers yep. had, and, yep. and boom, they were out of it. Yep. So as yep. the old saying goes, there ain't no sure thing in sports. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's why we play the games. <laughs> Patriots. Patriots going to be interesting. I don't think they're going to be as bad as people think. Um, I think when Aaron Rodgers came to the Jets, everyone said, oh, uh, uh, here's the order. It's going to be Bills, Dolphins, Jets, Patriots. Well, I think Aaron Rodgers did not have a good year last year. I know the people in, in New York are all excited about him coming there and leading them to a Super Bowl. But, you know, they're going to have to, like the Patriots, they're going to have to play the Dolphins twice. They're going to have to play the Bills twice. And they're going to have to play Bill Belichick twice. And that's not an easy thing. I think that uh, it's a big year for their quarterback. Um, and I think he's in good hands with his offensive coordinator now. And um, I really think that the, the working with – and last year was just a wasted year for Mac Jones when he was the quarterback because he had Matt Patricia, who was a defensive guy his entire life. And I, I know what was going through Mac's head when he was showing frustration on the field, when he was kind of letting his body language emotions work. Um, you know, I was, I was a quarterback. And if I had the defensive guy coaches came over and started calling plays, you know, after a while, you say to yourself, I know more about offense than my coach does. And I wish he'd let me call the plays. So now that they've got, now that they've got Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator, he was a, a wizard here with the Patriots. He was very good in, in um, Houston. He was the offensive coordinator for uh, Alabama for the last two or three years. And now he's bringing all that knowledge to working with the offense. I think you're going to see a team that's really going to uh, uh, really going to explode on offense. And who knows? They get DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, they get uh, Kelvin Cook, maybe. I mean, they, could, they could be even better. But I think that, um, you know, I think the Patriots can give the Dolphins a run for their money for second place. The, they, they, they're not good enough to uh, be better than the Bills. But I, I think the Patriots will not be that bad. Compound question. Do you think Bill Belichick will ever retire? And should Tom Brady have left here? 
Tom Brady should never have left. Um, but he and uh, they, they came a time. He, he just never showed uh, Tom um, the respect that he was due. Um, he always, you know, Tom, I can't tell you how many times Tom restructured his contract so the Patriots could keep somebody who was going to be a free agent or acquire a free agent. And Tom just kept doing it and doing it. And he said, you know, Tom just said, look, I just want a guaranteed contract that I, I can be here for the next two or three years. And Belichick wasn't, wasn't going to commit that type of money. He was going to get rid of Tom Brady told a good first, a good friend of his was a good friend of mine in uh, the uh, 2017. And this was August during the exhibition season. He said, I'm scared to death that Belichick's going to trade me at the end of the season and make Garoppolo his quarterback. Well, Robert Kraft got a hold of that, and Robert Kraft no way wanted to lose Tom Brady in 2017. So he walked into Belichick's office. It was Halloween uh, day. It was October 31st. Trading deadline was at 4 o'clock. He walked in about 1 or 2 in the afternoon and said, you're not trading Tom Brady. Trade Garoppolo. And then he, uh, Belichick didn't have much leverage because he didn't have much time. It's so all he got was a second-round draft pick from the 49ers for, for Jimmy Garoppolo. Now we go to his last season was what twenty nineteen, right? Um, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And you know he just uh, uh, Bill would not give him uh, the contract that he wanted. He w- wouldn't give him you know twenty five million guaranteed for the for for the next year. He you know, it was his, it was his contract year, and you know he went over. But uh, Tom went over and talked to Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft did not want to rock the boat, but. He also didn't want to see uh, Brady leave. Uh, Belichick wouldn't even take a phone call from either one of them the night that um, Brady made up his mind, which was a night or two before St. Patrick's Day. And sure enough, a day or two later, on St. Patrick's Day, Tom Brady announces it's going to be a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. And I never thought that I'd see the day when he would be wearing another uniform. Um, and But I think he was happy he did it. And I think he got he, – he, he, he I know he – uh, derived a great deal of satisfaction uh, from winning that Super Bowl. And then the Patriots, I don't even know if they made the playoffs that year with Cam Newton. They might have made the playoffs, but they were a non-factor. So that, that was a, that he, he should have he should have retired a Patriot. Um, and, you know, Bill's finding out, you know, the hard way what life would like Tom Brady is, is like in the National Football League. Yeah, I rooted for Tom Brady, too. I, re- I really wanted him to win that uh, Super Bowl. Do you do you go to any of the games now, um, or do you just watch I, them on television? I, I haven't gone since I, I retired full time in uh, ninth and twenty nineteen, and then I was uh, I was working three or four days a week as as a um, a freelancer, special uh, special correspondent. Um, did I go to any games that year? I don't think I did. And you know what? I didn't miss the ride. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I went. I went to the first game ever played in Foxborough. It was August 15th, 1971. I had just graduated from high school, and a guy named Herbie Gold and Johnny Gold, Johnny was a friend of mine, invited me and my dad, and we rode a bus from Swampscott, and we sat there, and the, uh, the four of us were sitting there, and the row, the row held about 20 people, and the other 16 people weren't there when the game started. And they some of them got there for halftime, some of them came in the third quarter because they were stuck in that god-awful traffic jam. And uh, so, and t- to me, 
the traffic hasn't gotten any better at all. It's still a nightmare going down there and coming home after a game. So I, I was happy to watch the games on TV. I don't know about you, but I was in the business for 20 years. And after I was out of it, not by my choice, I found it very difficult watching people do interviews. And I would sit there and say, geez, I can do that and I can do it better. Did you get that feeling at all? Yeah, that happens. Um, You know, and I think it's uh, I think it's natural for everybody to feel that way, whether you're a sportscaster or whether you're an insurance executive or you're a a stockbroker. You know, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have bought those commodities. I wouldn't ask that question. This is what he should have done. He should have been here. You know, and I, I still say it out loud sometimes when I'm watching TV that, uh, you know, uh, where's, where's the interview with so-and-so? You got to get, get that so-and-so on here right now. You got to get Eckersley, you know. And um, so I think it's, it's natural for, and especially when, when you leave and it's really not your choice 100%. I think, uh, I don't want to say you're, you're bitter, but you still think you know more than, than the people that are doing it now. Did you leave of your own choice, or did Channel Five say they wanted somebody younger? Uh, they didn't. They didn't say younger. They just uh, would. Uh, they they pretty much my thing had wrong. Uh, they wanted me to be a, a special correspondent, and that they were going to uh, look in a in another direction. All right, everybody knows what happened. You suffered a stroke. Um, tell us about that. I mean, had you made exotic plans to go to Europe on a cruise or anything like that that you had to put on hold. How did all that happen, Mike? Uh, when, when I, when I finished at channel five. Yeah. Yeah. We just, uh, we just agreed that, 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 um, uh, you know, they, they wanted to do things a little bit differently. Um, they, they, they had me anchoring the news and producing, uh, anchoring the sports and producing the sports, which is really an impossible task. Um, you know, you're in an edit room at 10, 10 past 11 and, you know, you should be looking over the script and updating the scores and this and that. And it just made it very, very hard. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I was sort of relieved. Um, and they said, look, we want you to stay on as a special correspondent. We'll give you such and such money each day you work. You just won't be a full time employee. You'll work enough to, uh, to keep your health insurance. Um, and. You know, uh, it wasn't that bad after a while. You know, I mean, I, I didn't have to, uh, you know, get on a plane and fly to San Francisco. Well, that was one of my one of my favorite parts of, of working there was was traveling and hitting the ground running. And but, you know, I I, I, I had enough I, at the time. I was let's see, I'm, I was 67 years old. So, you know, it wasn't like I was 57. I was 67. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I was going to just work one more year. And then I, that was, I think that was going to be it, but uh, it got accelerated a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I don't have any bitterness. I don't, I, I don't have any, any raw feelings towards anybody. Um, I just, I, I probably would have gone to the, I think my contract was up the following uh, August, I think. So I, I, I could have hung on for another year. When and what happened, Mike, with the stroke? How did all that happen? That happened a year ago, May 17th. Um, the Celtics were playing at 8.30. And for a month, I had been sitting around, you know, drinking drinking wine and just kill, <clears throat> killing time. I wasn't what to say I was a drinker. I was just, you know, sipping a glass of wine. And I was gaining some weight. So 
uh, excuse me, drinking a glass of water right here. Um, it's all right. <laughs> I, I, I said to my wife, uh, Mary Ellen, I said, uh, I'm going to take a walk around the block. Like a walk around the block was going to shed two pounds. But I, it was better than just sitting on the couch and doing nothing. So I, uh, we, have a, uh, we live in a, like a, it's not a, almost like a cul-de-sac, but it's a circle, basically. And, um, you know, you walk, uh, you walk up the, the hill. And I'm walking, I'm walking, and she was upstairs. She said, it's just, I, I, why, why is Mike going for a walk? So she walked the opposite direction. So she was walking toward me. And I'm, I'm walking up this very slight incline, incline very slight. And, and I'm huffing and puffing like I had just run a Boston Marathon or something. And my wife, Mary Ellen, says to me, what's the matter with your right arm? I said, I don't know. I can't feel it. And then I couldn't, I took my next step with my left, with my right leg. And I went face first. Now, fortunately, I hit the, you know, the grass between the street and the sidewalk. I hit the grass right there. And I said, I don't know what, what's happening. She said, uh, you know, I was talking like, uh, you know, she was, I was hard to understand. And so she tried, she ran home and got her car and tried to get me in her car. And she couldn't get me in. So she called her oldest daughter, Kelly, who lived uh, next, next door in Woburn, like five minutes away. And they got me in the car. And... Um, we called my uh, primary care physician at Mass General and we said, you know, we're coming in. He said, yeah, go right to the emergency room. I'll call up. We'll, they'll, be, they'll be waiting for you. You know, and I got there and they took me right down to uh, uh, CAT scan, and, you know, everything, just examining my head. And, and um, I was, uh, they said that I had had a, what's called a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a, a brain bleed. Yeah, it, it bleeds in your brain. And the you know the fastest the faster they get to you, the better chance you have of living or recovering. So thanks to my wife Mary Ellen and my daughter Kelly. Now we could have had an ambulance, but that but it, it might have taken me to Leahy and and uh, and I wanted to go to Mass General. So they drove me in, and my wife you know she knew that the Celtics were away because I was waiting to watch them. She knew the Bruins were off. She knew the Red Sox were away. So that meant that you know, around 8.30, quarter, 9 o'clock, she could zoom right in. And we got right to Mass General in like 10 minutes. And um, so they did all this analysis. They kept me at Mass General for about uh, four or five days. Um, and then they uh, transferred me to um, Spalding uh, Rehab Hospital in, um, in Charlestown, which is, an, I mean, physically, it's unbelievable. It's because it's right on the ocean. But of course, it, it, you well know, the people that work there are the world's best. So I was there for 100 days as a patient. And, um, you know, I, nobody told me I had a massive stroke to about August. I just, I figured, I, you know, this was May, May 17th. I figured, oh, uh, geez, am I going to be able to make that golf tournament uh, June 4th or 15th? You know? <laughs> so I, uh, uh, I was there and, you know, every, every day was uh, a lot of work. They, they, you know, they set the schedule up uh, eight o'clock, you have speech therapy, nine o'clock, you have occupational therapy, 10 o'clock, you have physical therapy, 11 o'clock, you have a, a group therapy, lunch from 12 to one, we're going to go one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. And, and people would say they want to come in and visit me. I said, all right, by the time I get back to my room, I'm exhausted. I don't want to, this, you know, no offense, but I'm, I'm, I'm wiped. And, you know, you'd, you'd go to bed at the, uh, you know, 830, nine o'clock and you wake up and do the same thing the next day. So I did that for a long time. I, I was uh, in bed. Uh, they'd have to lift me out and just to get me into a wheelchair. And by the time I left there, I was walking around the ward 
um, with a cane. And uh, under my own power, I was shaving, I was bathing myself, uh, all the things that I wasn't doing um, uh, for the first you know, month and a half when I was in there. And the group, uh, the, the people there are very supportive, but they're, they're also very demanding. You know, like, uh, you know, one day we, uh, they opened the door to the, the, the fire door to the, to the stairway, you know, 11 concrete steps going up and coming down. They, I said, what are we doing? It says, I want you to walk up those stairs. And I said, are you kidding me? I can't do that. I said, you do it. And I said, I, I'm not going to go up there. I'm going to fall down. You're not going to fall down. Go ahead. So I go up the stairs and I turn around. I said, now what? They said, come back down. <laughs> I said, I could, if I fall on these stairs, I'm dead. And they said, you're not going to fall on the stairs. Don't worry about it. So I made it down and I didn't think I could do it, but they pushed me. They knew I could do it. They didn't push me to do anything. They knew I couldn't do. And, uh, and so, you know, Sure enough, um, you know, walk on the stairs became, you know, a piece of cake for me. Um, so, you know, I was in there for 100 days. Uh, I got discharged on Friday, August 26th. And on Monday, August 29th, I was back at the same spalling do as an outpatient, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, which was really, a, you know, kind of a, a kind of a burden on, on my wife, you know, drive me into Charlestown and then either wait for me or come back and pick me up and drive me home. And so I had some friends uh, that would help out, you know, my daughter helped out a little bit around here. Um, and um, I did four months of, of physical therapy in there. And it was, um, it was very good. Then they, they, they encouraged me to uh, take the month of January and maybe February off. And I didn't want to, I said, geez, if I take it off, I feel like I'm going to go backwards. So sure enough, like January 6th, um, I just, my wife, Mary Ellen said, why don't you put it on six o'clock news? So I, I stood up from the couch and I went to reach at the coffee table for the uh, remote control. And I went, my, my, my affected foot, they call it affected and unaffected. It's the right foot. Well, that stepped on my, my left toe and I went face first down and I put my wrist, I tucked my wrist in, but my wrist snapped in half. And mm. so I had to go into mass again, back to mass general and, uh, um, I knew I was going to be there a long time, but I knew that when it got fixed, it would be fixed right. And um, so I was, you know, was lying there and, you know, didn't have any beds in any rooms. And like most people in the ER, you're out in the hallway, which is fine. And um, they said, it looks pretty good. You might need surgery. Uh, come back on Monday. This was a Thursday morning. So I came back on Monday and they said, yeah, we think we should have surgery. So I had surgery on January 12th. And so I began rehab on the wrist. Um in addition to, you know, uh, uh, therapy, you know, uh, my other therapy. So um, I, I eventually went to Florida. We have a place down there. And I said, you know, um, this is really uh, the perfect place for me. Up, up here, it's snow, it's ice. I can't go outside. Um, I can't climb stairs uh, and with ice and snow on them. And there's all hills around my house. So I went down to Florida and um, you know, you just you take the elevator down, you walk outside and you walk around the complex. And I would walk, you know, a mile, mile and a half every single day. And I go in the pool every day and I do all the exercises that I did in the pool at Spalding every single day. And I just went yesterday for an evaluation and um, that both doctors gave me high marks. They were looking at some of the tests I did back in December. And they said, boy, the, you know, that swimming and that walking has, has really helped you a lot. So I, I just started physical therapy again today. Um, and, um, you know, I was, you know, my balance is a little bit off. I, I, was, I was a little disappointed in that. But, you know, they, they, right out of the gate, they said, okay, here's a cane. 
now I want you to walk with the, your eyes closed. I said, what? <laughs> so walk with your eyes closed. All right, well, look to your left, look to your right. All right, while you're walking, I want you to look up, then I want you to look down, then I want you to walk backwards. So, you know, they're starting right there. It's like they're, they're picking up uh, where they left off, like in the top of the seventh inning. No warm up in the first inning for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was in Spalding. I was in a car accident. Yep. I had both feet in casts. And I had a doctor tell me, you will walk again. Because I was scared, you know what. And I was afraid that it wouldn't happen. But it did. Were you ever that scared? No. No. Um, I believe that I'm going to be, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I can walk a little bit, but it's, it's pretty, it's, it's not great. Um, I'm not, I, I know it's going to take more time uh, than maybe one year, uh, but I'm, I'm not scared. And something happens to you, Ken. And, you know, um, you, you know it as well as anybody. You don't have time to feel sorry for yourself. You don't have time to ask anybody else to feel sorry for yourself. Something take, takes over in your, in, your, in, your, in your attitude that makes you stronger and finds a, a, diff, a different avenue and a different way to get things done. And, and that's, that's how I felt. I've never once said, why me? And this really, this, this stinks. And, you know, um, I, I don't want to live my life like this. I just say, no, I said, I'm going to be better than I was yesterday. And tomorrow I'm going to be better than I was today. And I think that, that, that's really helped me. Um, family's been great. My wife's been unbelievable. I don't know where I'd be without her. I mean, she drives every place. And, you know, I, I walk with a, with a rollator. It's a rolling walker. And she pulls it up, puts it in the trunk of the car, lifts it out, you know. And, um, you know, she, she's been great. So I'm, uh, I'm not discouraged. Um, I, I know that it, it's a long uphill road I got ahead of me, but um, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I'm going to tackle it. What, anything planned for the future? Or are you just planning to, I mean, if I were you, I'd write a book. I mean, you've certainly got enough material. Everybody tells me that. And everybody, uh, when I first retired, everyone said, what a book you could write. You get so many stories. And, um, you know, I, I started, you know, I started writing some little snippets. And, and unfortunately, with a stroke, you know, it happened to, I'm, I'm right-handed. And, you know, my right hand, I, I can move my fingers, move my arms. And um, and you, you saw me there, there at the luncheon, you know, but, but the right hand is still... So I got a right left-handed. I know I can do voice dictation on, on the computer and I probably should do that. Um, but what I, what I do right now, uh, Bob, Lo, Bob Lobel and I have a podcast. Uh, uh -huh. we, we tape it on Tuesday mornings. It's called, uh, it's uh, called unanchored Boston with Bob Lobel and Mike Lynch. And, uh, and we have a lot of fun, you know, we, we do it for about an hour. You know, we used to get three minutes when we were on, on channel five and channel four respectively. And, uh, and now we, you know, we just talk about anything. We tell stories. Uh, and it's just hilarious. Uh, you know, we have some people on. We had Nate Greenberg of the Bruins on, and, and he was telling a story the other day. Remember when Mike Milbury went up in the stands and took the shoe and was hitting the guy with the shoe? Uh, yep. Nineteen seventy nine. So he was talking about that. Oh, he and Harry Sinden were like hiding underneath the bleachers, and then uh, a guy, the, the 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 Rangers said, "We'll give you a police escort to the Midtown Tunnel." So. Uh, they got a police escort to the Midtown Tunnel, and when they got there, they opened the, the bus door, and they 
that they thanked the uh, the 12 motorcycle police officers that gave him the police escort. One of them looked at him and stuck up his middle finger with a glove on right right at Harry Center. <laughs> he got his motorcycle and took off in the other direction. <laughs> I, I love Bob Lobel. I worked with him on Calling All Sports yeah. on BZ Radio. And, you know, there were times when I would think back and I would say, my gosh, I got to walk Tommy Heinsohn in to see Larry Glick. Yeah. Or I, I got to bring Satch Sanders, who's as tall as a brick building, yeah. into the studio. And, and I'm getting paid for this. I thought it was great. Not bad, huh? Not bad. Not I, bad. I know. I never lost sight of that. I always, you know, would say that, uh, you know, I can't believe that Bobby Ward knows my name. You know, he knows my name. He calls me Lynchy. He calls me Mike. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I want to gush and say, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, he, he, he called me four times when I was in Swalling, just out of the blue. I, I looked at my caller ID one time. It says Robert Orr. And I said, Robert Orr. I said, you can't be. <laughs> you know, and I went, hello, Michael, Bobby Orr, how you doing? And I went, oh, my God. He's got, you know, I mean, the, the people he knows, the thing, I mean, like, he took the time to call me four different times. Ask me how I'm doing. How's my attitude? You know, keep working hard. You're in the best place. You need anything, you call me. And, you know, I almost had tears coming down my eyes, you know? That's yep. I had a compliment like that once when Bob Wilson retired yeah. from the Bruins. Yeah. I called him and congratulated him. And he said, you know what? There are only three people that called me to congratulate me on my retirement. Bobby Orr, Cam Neely, and you. Yep. I never forgot that. Yep, absolutely. And you never the, forgot that. You remember the name of his boat? No. It's called Big Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you hear from anybody else besides Bobby Orr? Boy, uh, I'd I'd Governor, love to get a hold of your phone and all your phone numbers. <laughs> um Governor Baker a uh, number of times. Um, really? He was really nice, yep. Um in fact, he, he wanted to come to that luncheon we were at uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Mass Broadcasters Association. But he, his new job with the NCAA, he's you know all over the place. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was that was pretty neat that that both of them had had called me and um, um, you know. Brewski. Bruce, Bruce uh, sent me a text message. Yep, he sent me a text message. He said, "Hang in there, work hard. You know, you're in a great place." Um, and I thanked him and. Uh, um, yep, he, he did. Uh, Belichick, um, Jerry York came over my house. Um, you mean Belichick actually talked? Belichick, a... uh, sent me a text message. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was great, you know, for, for Bill, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. Listen, uh, I, I have so much admiration and respect for you. It's been a real kick for me to do this. Just congratulations on getting into the Hall of Fame. I'm in there, and, and I can't tell you. It's one thing to be respected by fans, but it's another to be respected and honored by your peers. And every honor, you deserve every bit of it. Ken, thank you so much. It was a great luncheon. I'm honored. I know you're in there. So many people I, I've looked up to and admired, and I can't believe that I'm part of that that elite group now that, that, that calls themselves Hall of Famers. Well, you should be, and you are, and uh, 
I'll be watching the sports tonight. I watch it every night, but there's something missing. There's yeah. no Mike Lynch. <laughs> well, thanks, tell, Scott. I, I appreciate tell, it. Tell me very quickly about five on five before we wrap it up. Five on five. The, uh, the, the, well, I, I wasn't involved in that show too much. That was more like Don Gillis uh, and Clark Booth. They, they, they did that. Uh, and that happened just before I got there. I got there in March of 82. And I think I want to say it was like 79 to 81 or 82. Wow, it didn't seem that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. We, really? I watched the old tapes all the time. I'd pull them out. You know, some night when we, when we used to have Monday Night Football, I knew the news wasn't going to start the one in the morning. I'd pull out. You know, a five on sports thing with Gillis, and he'd have Ted Williams, he'd have Bill Russell, <laughs> he'd have oh my goodness, I couldn't believe some of the guests that he had, and, <laughs> and how much they respected him. So I always, I always knew that I was stepping in big shoes, big shoes of, of Don Gillis, big shoes of Clark Booth, and to continue the tradition that those guys started local sports television and. You know, I, I, I would like to think that they're, they're trying to do the same now with Channel 5, but I'm not sure that's the case. But I sure as heck was, was going to try to be the best version of Don Gillis or the best version of Clark Booth that I could ever be. I mean, when you were there, you had four Red Sox World Series championships. You had a Celtics championship. You had a, a Bruins Stanley Cup in, in 2010 when, yep. when, when we thought they were all out of it. That yep. must have been. A, did those memories for you, like they do me, become more and more precious as time goes on? Especially when they don't win. Well, yeah. you can know, say I was I was present for all of them. You know, I mean, I I go back to let's see, uh, working wise, I grew up here, so I was at the sixty-seven, seventy-five. What you know, I go the I was at the eighty-six World Series. I was at the Stanley Cup in 88 and 90. Uh, I was at the NBA at the Super Bowl in 86. I was at the Super Bowl. I went to all 11 Super Bowls the Patriots have been in. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I do consider them precious moments. I mean, And I did say to myself, when I get up to my seat in the press box, and I look around on the Minneapolis Stadium where they, they lost to the Eagles, I think, and I look around and I said, I can't believe I'm at the friggin' Super Bowl. You know, Super Bowl. <laughs> when I first watched it, we didn't have a color TV, uh, so we had to go over to the neighbor's house, uh, the Moran's house, and there were like 20 people slammed into a room, about eight by ten, because they were they were the only family in the neighborhood that had a color TV. So, and then here I am sitting in in a seat in the press box covering the Super Bowl. Well, I'll tell you, Mike. I know I keep getting ready to wrap this up, but I'm going to do okay. it. But again. <laughs> Again, it's it's really a kick for me to do this. You you and Lil Bell were my sports heroes, uh, and and it's just great to sit down and talk to you. And when you see him, please please give him my best and tell him I was asking for him. We worked together for an awful long time, and we had an awful lot of fun. Especially when Willie Mays told me he thought he was the greatest athlete he ever saw. I <laughs> I never forgot that either. But, Thank, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank Ken. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you. Oh, it's not a problem. And that will do it for another edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. 
That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.